Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Battlefields Podcast, brought to you by The Epoch Times. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charles Fink, the director of the Battlefields Project and the owner of The Havoc Journal, where we pride ourselves on being the voice of the veteran community. This week, we are bringing you Profiles in Havoc, stories from the men and women serving our nation on the battlefield and the home front. Many thanks to The Epoch Times for their generous and enduring support of America's military and first responders, as well as to our other sponsors, including the Havoc Journal, the Second Mission Foundation, and Veterans Repertory Theater. And now, the host of the Battlefields Podcast and Profiles in Havoc, Christopher Paul Meyer. This week, I talk with Havoc Journal owner Charlie Faint and Andrew, an 18-year-old firefighter on the East Coast. So Andrew wrote a story for Havoc Journal about a non-fire-related incident that occurred on the job. And it was a powerful story. I'm putting a de facto trigger warning around it for all of you that are going to listen to this episode. It's a really powerful story, incredibly important story, especially if you want to understand life and death professions a little bit and understand the depth of experience that sometimes can occur in those lines of work. Andrew speaks them very well, um, but his piece was powerful enough that I thought it warranted talking about that. So we don't get into the stuff we normally do on this show. We didn't get into topical issues. Uh, we didn't talk about you know Israel and Hamas or anything like that. We, we stayed uh, keeping it a very personal episode. And I think it's something that a lot of people are going to relate to, uh, people that have lived lives in these kind of jobs, military, law enforcement, fire, what have you, and are going to be able to relate and appreciate uh, the impact that uh, trauma can sometimes make in your personal and professional life when you've experienced it up close and it's been right in your face. Andrew wanted to remain anonymous, uh, which it's funny. I, you know, I asked him about it. I said, you know, I don't know a lot of firefighters that have top secret clearances. Um, and we kind of laughed about that, but, uh, it was, gr- it was, he had great insight into like, Hey, just in general, you kind of, in this day and age, you kind of just watch your, you know, you want to protect your, your privacy. And, uh, as an 18 year old, I thought, man, this is the generation that was raised in an age where that's a legitimate concern and you, and they're just more guarded about, uh, letting people who know, know who they are in ways that some of us older guys don't really care. And we kind of get on and just say what we want to say and own it and what have you. But it was an interesting generational divide moment. I thought, anyway, it's a great episode. We talk about death. We talk about insecurity. We talk about why a 16 year old would ever want to become a volunteer firefighter. Um, all of it's incredibly worthwhile. It's probably the most personal episode we've done yet. I really enjoyed it. And I think you're really going to enjoy hearing Andrew and Charlie and I discuss these issues and bat them around a little bit. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. So welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Havoc. It's a roundtable discussion of the week's events by the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Andrew is a volunteer firefighter on the East Coast. He is currently in the Fire Academy. He just graduated from high school. He is starting college in the fall. Andrew, welcome to the Weekly Havoc. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Pleasure to be here. How are you guys doing? 
we're good, man. And we're glad you could be here. And, uh, and obviously you were the genesis of this whole episode because we're going to be diving into your article. So really appreciate you being on. Of course, Charlie's here as well. Charlie Faint, active duty army intelligence officer, the deputy director of the modern war Institute at West point. He has assignments throughout both conventional and special operations, including JSOC, seven deployments in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea, three master's degrees, currently a PhD candidate, executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, and owner of the Havoc Journal. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me back on the show. Andrew, really excited to have you on. Uh, very interested to, to get into talking about your article when we get to that point. Thanks for being here. Not a problem. Yeah, and and once again, a very extensive resume. (laughs) (laughs) We all aspire to be Charlie. We all want our resumes to be Charlie's at some point. Um, But listen, we're we're not going to dawdle too much before we dive right into the meat of this. Um, I'll just say that Andrew, this is you're breaking a couple of barriers here because you are the first. Charlie can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're the first first responder we've had on with no military background. So we're being completely first responder focused today. So, um, yay, there's, there's a little glass ceiling that you just broke, um, for all those keeping score at home. So your article, it was titled firefighters deal with more than just flames. And I'm always interested in firefighting. My actual first MOS in the army was a firefighter. And I did that for eight years. Uh, I loved firefighting. If the only the army knew what to do with firefighters, it would be an even better job. But um, it was it was great, and, and so I always have a big heart for firefighters and what they go through, especially on the civilian side, where they actually do a lot more real world work than we did in the military. So, first, Andrew, I'm just going to ask you to recap your story for those that may not have read it. Obviously, we'll link to it in the show notes. But I guess talk to us first off. Why did you feel compelled to write this piece? So I was very young. Uh, matter of fact, I first joined the fire department when I was 16 years old, uh, which I didn't even think was possible until one of my friends at the time enlisted me in. Um, but I had written this because it's something that has always stuck with me. And it's just, it's good to be able to get it off my chest because at the time I knew my parents, if I had told them the story that they probably would have made me leave. So it's something that I've like bottled up inside for a while and that being able to express it and especially, you know, being able to kind of show that to a you know bigger audience and, you know, show the world that it's like, you know, we deal with more than just fires where the title comes in, you know, we deal yeah. with more than just flames. 80% of our calls are medical. Most of the calls I go on have no relation yeah. to fire. Right. And this was the first major call you were on, right? Yep. This was one, I want to say I was in the fire department for three, four months at the time. Okay. So I was very new. Um, I was what was called a probie, a blue helmet, uh, trainee. So I, I mean, I knew a little bit, I had some experience, but I, I was not at all what you would call a seasoned or experienced firefighter in the slightest. Had you dealt with life or death issues prior to this call? Uh, yes. Okay. On the job. I mean, not on the job, but in okay. other personal experiences. Yes. In your personal life. Okay. So, so bottom line, I mean, you were, so you did felt, if you felt like you had some conditioning mentally, uh, when this occurred, it didn't 180 degrees throw you in a completely opposite direction where your brain was just like, what the hell did I just see? Yes, I have, I have had, I have seen death before, uh, but once again, seeing death doesn't 
you know, there's no way to desensitize or condition yourself to where it's easier the next time you see it. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that. I don't know. I mean, I think there is a way, but it's probably not a healthy way. Um, but, but yeah, that's right. And that's probably a good sign. I think, um, Charlie, correct me on this. Who is it that's, I think somebody's well-known and I'm, I'm butchering their, who it was. Are you thinking Grossman? It might be Grossman. I, I, I can't remember, but somebody said, you know, yeah, that, that, the PTSD or, or any discomfort or, or severe shock reaction to death and violence is the sign that you are healthy because it's not totally normal yet. And I'm paraphrasing and I can't remember who it was. Was that Grossman? So it sounds like something Grossman would say. I don't rececognize okay. the exact quote. But I'm just kind of wondering uh, on that, Drew, and along the lines of what Chris just said. So this was one of your first calls. Did you think this is what is what firefighting was going to be like? You had this huge incident that anyone reading the article is going to say, "Wow, this is this is crazy. This is super traumatic." Were you just like, "Okay, this is what we do as a firefighter"? I I remember sitting down with my captain, really pondering whether or not this is something I wanted to continue, uh, and he, I remember. He, he he i remember seeing him who he was also shocked as well too like this had surprised mm-hmm. him yeah. and that that had told me okay this is not something normal has right he was just like andrew i've been doing this for 35 plus years and this is the first time i've seen something like this and so so, so probably in fairness to everybody listening let's recap just what happened. So those that haven't read the article yet are up to speed. Just walk us through the bullet points of what exactly happened. So at the time I couldn't drive. So my father would drop me off at 7 PM. So I'd work from 7 P to 7 AM at the fire department, a 12 hour shift um, every week from anywhere from Friday to Saturday night, uh, sometimes both nights, sometimes just one, but I showed up and it was just right at shift change. So some people had already left. Some people were rolling in. So our numbers were uh, distorted. Like we didn't have everyone there at the station that we needed. And right at about seven o'clock, right when shift change happened, uh, we got the call. I had my gear in my hand and I was walking towards the back. And I remember Captain P, just what I'm going to call him, just ran out, which is like Andrew getting the medic truck as I had everything in my hand. So I was able to quickly throw everything in the back and we were off. Uh, whenever, uh, we got there, um, I was pulling up the notes. We typically have a medic unit that's attached to our fire department, but they were on a preview. They were on another call. So yeah, I was going to ask what, what was your medical certification at the time? So I medical- had any MT training at that point. No. Um, at, at this time, I mean, I had uh, first aid, CPR, basic right. uh, basic firefighter. I gotcha. did not have my EMT. I was going to get my EMT this summer, but the fire academy, I don't have time. But that is definitely something that I look forward to getting in the future. So um, our medic unit was being backfilled by another fire department in our vicinity. And basically just farther away. So it was going to take them more time. So we were the first ones to arrive on scene and we could hear the police off in the distance, but, and it came in as an accidental shooting. So we weren't, you know, we weren't getting body armor on or anything. And typically dispatch would inform us if we needed to, you know, get ready for anything like that. But so you did have body armor on your rig that is something you carry. Yep, we do. But it came in as an accidental shooting. So this, we weren't, 
you know, in our mind, we weren't prepared for, you know, being shot at. We were prepared to treat a bullet wound. And so we open up the door and it's one of those doors that like immediately opens up into like the living room. And whenever you first walk in, it was, you just see a woman and she had blood on her hands, on her face, where it looked like she was like wiping away tears. And it was an infant child uh, with just no head, like it was gone. And so, and I just kind of stood there shocked and I could see the shotgun like laying off the side, not that far away. And I mean, I probably just paused for, I don't know how long. All I remember is my captain yelling at me saying, grab the child. And I just, I didn't even see the child at first till he pointed it out. And eventually I went going over there and kind of, and this was a second child just to be clear for everybody. Yep. So not so, the baby on the ground that was deceased, but yep. now there's another child. Yeah. Yep. There was a 12 year old kid standing off in the hallway and then there was the uh, deceased infant child on the ground and the sobbing mother. I mean, there were words coming out of her mouth, but it was just hysterical. Yep. Like there was, there was no, co- yeah, just yep. babbling. There was nothing that was coherent. And so uh, Captain P just stayed in there and I took her outside. And I mean, there was, there was no emotion on this girl's face. And I assumed just shock i mean i was trying i was trying to compose myself because i was like i need not to freak out because i don't want to freak her out um but eventually the cops roll up and i'm just trying to talk with her and eventually captain p comes out a few minutes later with the um with the mother and i'm trying i'm trying to talk with her and then she ends up like rubbing on her shoulder and i just thought that was odd and i was like hmm, why would her shoulder hurt and so I had talked with her and then she was, I was like, Hey, can I take a look at it? She didn't say anything to me. Like it was very few words. And like the few words that she did say was just like, like yeah, yeah. muttered. And yeah. so, uh, when I asked if I could take a look, she just nodded. And so I looked and like right on her, anyone who's ever fired a shotgun before would know whenever you fire one, it leaves a, like a nice little red mark on your shoulder. And there was just a faint little red mark on right there. And in my head, I'm trying to convince myself, is there anything else that could have, that could have put that mark there? And then, yeah. and, and then she made the comment, my shoulder hurts. And I'm just, I'm having like this internal conflict with myself that like, there's no way yeah. that, that this happened, but it's, it's what made sense. I'm like, there's no one else inside the room. The mother has a very appropriate reaction for what's happening. Right. right. And so, I, I, ooh, gets me. It's a, little, a hard one, man. No, it it's is. a this is a, this is a hard one. I mean, and and if we were a different show, we'd probably put a trigger warning up up ahead of time because this is this is heavy shit. I mean, there's there's no two ways about it. Um, yeah, no, take your time, man. I mean, this this is a and and I let me I'll filibuster for you a little bit um, just to, just to cover for a minute. But I mean, this is one of the reasons why not only is this worth talking about, um, but the gravitas is something that I think people, I, I think it's when you're in a life and death profession, whether it's the military, law enforcement, fire, I think a lot of times this is the the civ-military divide. And it's called civ-military, but it's really not just military. It's for anybody in the profession of arms, anybody in a life or death business. These are the kinds of events that you run into that a lot of times people don't 
understand because they're to them, they're seeing you at the supermarket, they're seeing you when you get home, or they're seeing you in some other context. And they don't realize that you look just the same. You're wearing the same clothes they're used to seeing, but other shit is going on for you. Other experiences are happening and your head is not where the normal civilian has their head. And that's, I think a big point that um, hopefully we can bring home. Go ahead though. Take it, take it away from here. Because I remember when the cops uh, rolled up, they ended up going up and meeting Captain P at like the front door and they slapped her in handcuffs and police will, I mean, detain people because they don't know what's going on. And so, and then I remember another cop had come up to me and was just like, and as soon as I told him, I was just like, hey, uh, she's complaining of some shoulder pain. Um, And then he had asked me. Hey, like, is there anyone else? I was like, no, there's no one else inside uh, the building. And I, 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 it's, it's a bit of a blur, but I, I don't remember specifically if he'd went back to his car and it, I said something to the other cop, then come back and slap her in handcuffs, or if he'd slapped her in handcuffs right then and there. Yeah. But he had put her in handcuffs briefly after I had told, told him what had happened. And they had both, um, put both of them in the back seat of the car and the cops are talking to are talking to both of them and you know the paramedics show up and the police come up and they're like yeah she was she was able to i didn't hear it but the cop had come up and told my captain that it was her the child who had who had shot the shot uh that the mother was able to get the words out uh to explain to them what had happened and so, and I can't remember had, she, had the mother witnessed it, or did she come on after? So, um, about a week later, when I was working next, uh, my captain he had sat down. He had sat down with me because he had he knew the cops personally. And so, this was this was not a firefighter to a firefighter. This was yeah. this was Andrew to Captain P, so that you could get some peace of mind yeah. about what happened. He had told me like, "Hey, this isn't you know exactly something I'm." You know, supposed to tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And so, um, she had there. She the infant was doing belly time on the floor, and the mother was sitting in the chair, maybe but a couple feet away, doing yeah. doing something mundane. Yeah. And briefly, within a second, uh, the twelve year old girl comes in with a shotgun, and she turns around. And but she she witnessed the whole thing happen and just it was just, she didn't have enough time to react to do anything but otherwise just to see it happen. Yeah. And and you say in the article I can't remember the extent to which you went into this but you found out after the fact that the little girl, uh, the twelve year old had had mental issues and had kind of been known to have mental issues. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, the police had told had told Captain P that they had been there before for this girl having other. Uh, mental problems what those are i don't know but it's something that deserved the police uh, that warranted the police coming something out yeah something so, that warrant yeah, the police yeah and so and jesus and so this isn't the first time that she has been you know called you know needed yeah. someone to call upon but yeah. for me it's just there's there are a couple things going through my mind if you knew if you knew your child was mentally not there Right. Why do you have a gun? Right. Why, or if you do, why is it readily available for them? Right, right. Was it so? Was it in a bad part of town? What was the socioeconomic picture in that area? Was it something where you think a gun was warranted, or did it look 
that like this was a completely unnecessary. This event. was probably uh, middle to slightly like lower class redneck, okay. um, and so gotcha. Not not I wouldn't say not not safe, but not dangerous. Yeah, yeah. So it was on. This was this. There really was no good plausible reason that a gun should be lying around easily accessible to anybody, especially somebody, especially if you child, especially if you have children in general. Yeah. Yeah. So Andrew, let's push this forward then a little bit. So talk about what this meant then in your career. Here you are three, four months into your firefighting career and you're doing this at an awfully young age. You're starting at 16 but you stuck with it regardless. Talk about what the decision making was that went behind that. So at the time I was the youngest member there in the fire department. And I, I remember the conversation I had with Cap P afterwards and seeing that this was not the normal. This is not exactly what it is, you know, that you see on a typical daily basis. This, I happened yep my first or one of my first big experiences happened to be something that really hardly ever happens. And I knew that for what I want to do in my life and I have is for what I want to do in my future, that this is something that's really going to help me. And that if I stick through with this, that I'm going to get the reward that I get with the time that I put in. And I did. And I just, I was, and I, I did get help not only for this event, but other events that I had wow. experienced. Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about the age issue. I mean, for one thing you're doing this. So you're working a 12 hour shift once a week yep. as a high school kid and training. That's, and, and then, then how, yeah. How many hours a week on average did you train? It was, it's like working a part-time job. I put anywhere okay. from, um, 25 to sometimes 35 hours a week into okay. the fire department. Wow. Okay. So what, talk, go back to your origin story then. Where did this come from? Why as a 16 year old kid were you saying, Hey, high school's not enough. And I want to basically double up and take a second job. Um, and not just working bag and groceries, but literally going out and doing life and death work and being trained accordingly. Where did that drive come from? Where did your interest come from to even do that? So at the time, um, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was fully devoted on going into law enforcement. I was part of this program called the police explorer program that I had originally started in a different state. But when I had moved to this state, I had started up in there as well too. I had, and one of my friends who was a senior at the time, I didn't know he was a volunteer, but he was just like, Hey, Andrew, aren't you part of that, uh, police, exp- police explorer program? And I said, yeah. And he's like, have you ever thought about being a volunteer firefighter? And I'll quote myself. I'm like, that doesn't sound legal. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just like, and he was like, wait, how old are you again? And I'm like 16. He says, great. That's the perfect, you know, that's just the right age you need to be. And so I had, I had emailed the fire chief at the, at the department and he was just like, yeah, come in tomorrow at this time and I'll talk with you and your parents and we'll get you set up. And it was, uh, I officially joined December 26, 2018. Uh, I got all my gear and everything. 
And there I was. And what at that point did you think, hey, I'm over law enforcement. This is the path I want to go? Or were you still like, hey, whatever, this is just, just I'm striking where the iron's hot and this is the 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 strong play right now. So I took a I took a big career change uh when I started uh talking, doing ride alongs and talking with uh the police department because I wanted to go into crisis negotiation and mm-hmm. dealing with people under stress. Mm-hmm. And so I saw what the impact on what years of law enforcement, what years of firefighting, what years of being a paramedic could do. And then the military with, I don't have any military experience, but with my having ties in the family with military, I see what the military can do to you. And so I was just like, I want to go into the mental health field, but I want to better understand the the people I want to help. So why not do their jobs so that instead of being able to sympathize, I can empathize. And so I want to do the jobs of the people I want to help. So in other words, first responders. Yep. Okay. Wow. So, so obviously you're about to go to college. Do you see that then being your major and your focus is to go into the mental health field right away? Or is this something where you're like, you know, I might detour for 20 years and do something in the fire department. Uh, it's, it's been something I've been pondering. I'm going to get my major is going to be in social work. Okay. And so, and I can do a lot of things with that degree and whether it be going straight into social work, I can go into law enforcement, fire department. There's many different things that I can do with that degree. And ultimately I will stay a volunteer for as long as possible, regardless of whatever I do career wise. And so just being able to gain that experience and gain that understanding to better help the people that I want to do. So I'm not sure. And I have five years to, yep, to figure it out, five, to figure it out. So I, I, again, I just want to underscore this cause, cause it impresses the hell out of me. Um, the fact that you chose for reasons of, of empathy that you want to be able to experience what your potential patients in the future would be experiencing. Um, and then just for civic mindedness to go into uh, the fire department at that age and to be going on calls and doing what you were doing uh, when so few others are, what do you, so obviously the big, I'm going to back up and, and, and go, go for it, go for a, a different aspect of this. When I was a firefighter, um, the, the thing they always taught us at the, and I, I went through I was my initial MOS in the, in the army and uh, at the schoolhouse, the thing that the Academy, one of the things they always were able to say is, Hey, the two most respected professions in the country are the military and the fire service. And you're a military firefighter. So you're next to Jesus basically <laughs> uh, on the respect scale. And um, certainly in my, in my relatively short career as a firefighter, uh, that was always the rap. Um, we'd always talk about, you know, Hey, we're not pigs. You know, we're not the cops. Everybody loves a firefighter. Nobody likes a cop, but everybody loves a firefighter. And, um, we'd go on parades and we'd spray the kids with the, our, our, you know, uh, turret guns and, and where we had the water cannons on our turrets and everything. And everybody had a good time. Everybody loved us. And I think that is a, um, I mean, there was some hard stuff too. I'm not trying to say it was all, you know, this side of a, a, a calendar shoot, but yeah, at, at the same time, um, the, the, there, there was, you know, challenging stuff for sure. I guess what's interesting to me though, is you were diving into the deep end of the pool. Um, you were 
you were seeing the working edge, the working end of that job right off the bat. And it spurred you to do more. And especially for a 16 year old, when you have so many other options, whether it's video games, whether it's hanging out with your friends, whether it's, you know, chasing girls, booze, drugs, there's a million other things that you could be doing. The, it strikes me that the the percentage of the population that would be driven to do something so physically and emotionally taxing while you're still in school is incredibly small. So first, let me just ask, how many other kids are doing this in your experience? How many other kids that you know of are going down the same path? When I started, I recruited and my two and a half years I'd been, I've taken eight other people that were in my wow. high school and they had all stick through and they were really? all people that I recommended and they had stuck through. Other than that, I would say uh, nine people in total, uh, my friend who had recruited me and then the eight other people I brought in. So, okay. So let me hear your pitch. What's your pitch then? Obviously you're saying something that works or you're just finding the right people, <laughs> but what is it? What is it that you sell people? on? What is it that people that these kids are jumping on board for? So for me, I, I found people that were forward, forward thinking you build a good work ethic now and you work hard now. So it pays off later in the future. And also that if you find people that are also interested in the fire department as well, too, that they, they will build your career. I'm, I went to school and got certificates, uh, for the fire department at my local community college that I didn't pay a dime for. I'm going to the fire Academy and I'm not paying a dime for it. I give my time and learn all these useful skills that have helped me in the real world and things that are actually beneficial. Um, and I, I sell this, you know, it's something better to do something more that you can do. And it's different. It's not what everyone else is doing because, you know, the clubs you do at school aren't exactly going to, you know, benefit you later, you know, studying, you know, 24 seven, getting that 4.0 GPA, all A's, everyone's doing that. But if you have an AB student, 3.5 GPA, but you're also a volunteer firefighter. Yeah. Stands out. Absolutely. But it seems like the prerequisite then for these kids and for and for you and your friends has been career focus that yeah. you are thinking, hey, in the long term, and I don't want to say it's resume building because that kind of cheapens it, but there is an aspect of like, hey, look at the certifications you can get, look at the experience you can get, look at the job you're able to say you're doing, and look at that how that plays out in your career path down the road. Yep, and look at the people you get to meet, look at the connections, look at the job opportunities. Um, like the potential, it, it builds a future and you get to like learn useful skills. You get to work with good people and it's, it's a good community. It's a second family as well too. So let me, let me ask you about the other, the flip side. What about for lazy kids? Is there a pitch in your experience that, that could work for kids that are, and, and when I say lazy, I mean, aimless, shiftless, um, having no focus that. To me, it would strike me that this would be something that would be so valuable for kids to go to start thinking outside themselves, not just kids for anybody. Uh, it's, it's not a generational thing, but for kids that may not have a focus mm-hmm. that, man, this would be something where it suddenly gives them a, a social consciousness in a way that's that's real and concrete. It gives them awareness of empathy for, and sympathy for people that are not them. Um, so it, it kind of eliminates a lot of narcissism and solipsism and, and, and self-interest. 
And, uh, and then of course has all the other second and third order effects of, of career benefits. But for somebody aimless and shiftless, I would think there, there has to be a way of kind of force feeding that into somebody's life. No. Being able to physically do it because there's a um, seven, yeah. there's a, there's a 77% fail rate for the training that they, that they do. Really? Uh, my, my class wow. started off with, there's this one class specifically where we get, where it's called rescue and SCBA self-contained breathing apparatus. That is the highest fail rate in the class. I don't specifically remember. All I know is my class had 18 people and four passed. Um, wow. Wow. And so, so, so just, uh, just, uh, so my, my specialty when I was in the fire service was uh, confined space rescue. And I, um, we focused on that a lot when I started commanding that unit. Cause I thought that was a, a niche area we could make our mark. So when you're talking about your rescue SCBA, when, sorry for everyone listening, we're going to nerd out for one second right. on technical rescue, but what, what is, what exactly is that rescue SCBA? Is it like the emergency operations trainer? Are you going through the, the tunnels? Is that going? through the tunnels going through the uh the box the wire box if you know what that is uh going through searching the building trying to drag out victims yes Yes. uh, being in confined spaces and people are claustrophobic trying to get used to the mask breathing the compressed air being blindfolded uh being put under heavy pressure Mm -hmm. um and then heights is another big thing as well too. And some people just can't physically take it on. Some people uh, just emo- like mentally can't do it. Some people are just claustrophobic. Uh, some people just can't physically do it. And it's not to you know shame anyone. It's just if you know we're trying to protect you because if we throw you in a burning building and you physically are incapable of saving somebody else and or yourself, you're going to end up dying. So the first image that was going through my mind was Chris Otero, who was on the other week and talking about his application is in for his volunteer firefighter, uh, the, the local uh, Jolly Volleys that are near him. And he's he's looking to sign up. And uh, he, I think, gave a shout out to that at the end of the, the uh, episode we did with him. And I'm thinking of him right now going, all right, Chris, here you go. Be, are you going to be one of the 77% or are you going to be one of the ones that make it through? Um, for, for you guys, did you go through the, the, uh, we called it the emergency operations trainer. Did you go through that the second they issued your gear? Cause I know in our Academy, we did the second we got the gear, the next thing we did, they were like, here's all the bells and whistles on it. Here's where you turn on your air and everything, put it on. You're going right in the EOT right now. And we're going to smoke you in there. Was that how it was for you guys? Uh, that's not how, so we got our gear and we had a packet of all these lists of training that we had to go that our uh, captains or lieutenants could sign off of and then that they would have classes scheduled for us to do them. Now, depending on the night that you were on, depending on the captain or lieutenant that you got on, they may um, depends on whether or not they would smoke you or not. Um, and the volunteers less than the, uh, the paid staff. Sure, sure. But when it came to the classes, uh, regardless of who was there, paid or volunteered, you would you would you would get smoked. You'd be both held to the same standard. Uh, anyone taking any of these classes, you know, paid or volunteered, it, you were all held to the exact same standard. That's well. That's as it should be. I mean, the fire's mm-hmm. not going to know any difference. So yeah, that's exactly how it should be. Um, Charlie, I wanted to throw it to you for one second. The, uh, to me, I mean, I'm sure you got your own questions for Andrew, just like mm-hmm. I do. But for me, the one thing that I, I wanted to throw to you was the insight derived from doing life and death work. And I think at any age, there's a certain wisdom and a certain depth of knowledge 
Um, it, it, you might know the same things you knew before, but there's a deepening and a resonance with them that you didn't have before you were engaged in life and death work. Um, do you feel the same way? You see the same absolutely, thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Chris this is one of the things I was thinking about listening to Andrew talk. And this was such a fascinating thing to hear you two talk about firefighting things and to draw parallels to my own experiences and the experiences of veterans. And Chris, I know you're a, you're a vet and a former firefighter, but I think that's one of the reasons that first responders and vets, even, even if they don't share the same experiences, have a kind of kindred spirit in serving something that's bigger than themselves and the element of physical danger and the camaraderie and everything else. So I, I really see a lot of parallels between the two of them. And I'm just really grateful for Andrew coming on and, and sharing that experience, because I think that's something a lot of our vets can directly relate to Chris. I'm going to say something that I hope I, I hope comes out the right way. I always am, you know, doing the podcast. I love doing the show, but as a writer, you get multiple drafts. And when you're doing the podcast, you kind of have your first draft and, and you hope that it came out right. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to walk this tightrope a little bit. And Andrew, tell me if you think this makes sense. Um, I think when you are in a profession where life and where, where death is, is a distinct possibility to not be engaged in something where death, where, where you do run across the most high stakes aspect of that actual death, actual life-saving work. I, f I feel like you feel that one feels incomplete in that profession until you've experienced that. And until you've dealt with those life and death issues face to face and seen how you came out of them and seen if your training actually manifested itself the way it was supposed to, and that you passed the test and you've, I know for me, I felt like until I had, I, I felt like I was waiting for the profession to change me in some ways. And I felt like the change would only happen when something extreme or big enough occurred that kind of changed me. Does that make sense? Does that kind of resonate with you in any way? I, I understand kind of like that big event is kind of like a test to your mental will in a sense or physical will. And it's like people who join the fire department are like, oh, you know, they like, I want to, you know, I want to do all this good. I want to see this. I want to do that. They have all this, you know, enthusiasm and they're like, oh, I'm going to do, you know, these great things. And it's like, I can do it. I can do it. But then it's almost like they don't understand it till they actually see it. Right. And seeing right. those big, you know, gruesome or physically taxing events is that's, that's when you can ultimately decide I can do this or you can't do it. Yeah, I feel like everyone sort of, I, I, in my experience, I mean, it's usually been men. Um, there's certainly plenty of women that do. Um, it, I'm just going to talk about this from the male perspective because that's all I've ever been. But, uh, but it seems to me that the image in my mind, and maybe only it's people of Generation X, but it was always kind of like a Ben Kenobi weathered warrior thing that you want to get to. You want to get to that place where you've seen it all done it all. And then you can correctly assess different situations because there's that experience. And I know my youthful enthusiasm when I was younger 
was geared towards becoming that weathered, seasoned warrior that maybe knew a bit more and seen a bit more. Um, and I feel like sometimes that youthful enthusiasm gets mischaracterized by people um, where they go, ah, you know, you're romanticizing it. Eh, you'll get over that. You don't know what you're talking about and all that. That's true. They don't. But I think every youthfully enthused person knows they don't know what they're talking about. And it's like, that's the enthusiasm. That's what's generating the to. will. That's the, and they want to. They want to get into that, right? And also being able to relate with the people who have been, because if you, me as a young firefighter, and I'm all around all these other experienced firefighters, even when I go to my college classes that I've seen and been through things and being able to relate with the teacher who's been doing this for 35 plus years and being able to be like, I've been that, or I've done that. And it's just that even though it's some of it's like, wow, like I never thought in a million years that I would do that. Or it's. Charlie, we talked about this um, a while ago when we were having lunch, uh, if you remember, and I'm glad I remembered it. And I'm glad Andrew has led us down this path where I can now we can talk about this on air. But the value of insecurity and the benefits of being insecure, that it, it, it gives you that impetus to try to find security and to achieve greater things and more daring things and more worthwhile things in many respects, because you don't, there's a certain, there's a subtle and maybe sometimes not so subtle insecurity that is driving you and pushing you and impelling you to do more. I think that's the wisdom that comes from being in a life or death profession. I think a lot of people are overconfident in their own abilities because of lack of experience. And I'm thinking, uh, I know what I don't know now, and that's kind of scary, and that makes me want to do better. And I think it's the same in other professions, police officers, firefighters, EMTs, what have you. And I also, it gives you a little bit of, it gives you security because you know you can handle it. And that stress inoculation of being experienced like what, what Andrew just experienced. And what I also like about our, our shared kind of profession of, of service is it gives you a lot of clarity. There's so much that people don't care about anymore after being in such a high stakes environment, like getting cut off on the highway. Don't care about that. Um, I, I, still, stay, do. I still care about it. <laughs> <laughs> I wait can't get line, past it. Yeah. Wait, wait in line at the DMV. <laughs> I don't care because no one's trying to kill me. I'm going home to my family, et cetera. Nobody died on my watch today. And I think that that can in many circumstances be the result of these experiences like you and Andrew and I are sharing today, Chris. It reminds me, and I'm, I'm, we're kind of going down a little bit of a philosophical path, but I'm, I'm cool with it if you guys are. Go uh, for it. One, one of the, uh, I, I was listening to a, God, what was it? It was a, like a lecture on the Bible, and they were talking about, um, uh, I think it was the Beatitudes, and they were talking about, um, blessed be the meek, and about what meekness was. And I think I'm right. I, I, I'll put this in the show notes or, and cover myself within an alibi if, if this is not correct. But from what I remember, it was um, something to the effect that meekness was, if you go back to the original Greek that had, had that, that led to the King James Version using the word meek in the Beatitudes, how they identified it was the, the, the example that the Greeks used when they were talking about this is that meekness was being an experienced savage warrior and choosing to keep your sword sheathed in a certain situation. Andrew, take us back with life and death work. All right. So right now, how do you, how different do you feel from when you started as a firefighter? 
I have a different perspective on life and death. I feel like I should live every day as if it's my last. There's, there's a quote that I've, I discovered when I was in the fire department, and I don't remember who, how, or when, where I discovered it. All I know is it's you live like you die today and dream like you live forever because you don't know when you're – when. Because you know you're going to walk out that door, but you don't know if you're going to walk back in. And yeah. so it's yeah. just to live live life and try your best and the hardest every single day. And because you never know when it will be taken away. And it's, a, it's an interesting feeling, especially at a young age, that it's like with what I'm deciding to do that I know that I could, I could, I could die. And it's, it's an interesting feeling. I'm not it's like I'm, I'm not scared of it, but I am, but it's, mm -hmm. I know it's a possibility and it's, I'm not one of those people that are like, Oh, you know, I'm immortal. I'm young. Death isn't, you know, it's impossible that it can't happen to me, but I just, I take precautions and just. Can can I try to put it in context for you? Cause I've thought about it. the same thing. And maybe if this resonates with you, I hope it does. And if not, then not. But what I've seen is that there's death has a real value as an idea doesn't have necessarily have value in occurring. Sometimes it does, but, but often, you know, I mean, you kill Osama bin Laden. Hey, great. That, that's value added. But generally speaking, you know, death has a lot of downsides when it actually occurs, but the concept of death is a motivator. If we all were to find out, I've, I, you know, I, I feel like we're doing the late night dorm room talk and we should have a lava lamp going in the back and we're all just kind of sitting here looking at the stars musing about things. But I, one of the things I, I have thought about when I'm in that headspace is Highlander, you know, and if you do live forever and I was like, man, if you lived forever, you would get nothing done. There would be no, you, you, why not sleep in? What, what's, so what, what, what do I have to do today? Same thing no do tomorrow. What's your motivation? <laughs> like seriously, without death, like how do you get out of bed every day? Um, if so, fine, I'm homeless. I lost my job, whatever, you know, I'll outlive these people or I'll find a way or I'll break in and steal because uh, you know, throw me in jail, whatever. I'll be here long after the jail's disintegrated. So uh, yeah, you know, it's those, that that's kind of a trippy thing, but I think the concept of death is very valuable. And then our work to not die is equally as valuable. Our, our, our respect, our classical interpretation of fear of death is incredibly important because now that's something to work against, but it's that valuable concept that can inspire us and drive us. Also being able to help other people with, you know, not dying as well too, because there's other people that will be in fear of death because if you are in a burning building and this isn't this isn't your norm this isn't what you see on a daily basis they're not going to know what to do and they're going to be feared and panic and so that's when we would come in you know absolutely 100% so the last thing i want to dwell on cuz as as happens when you get into lava lamp world where we're now pushing up against our our time <laughs> but um I want to throw this out there just because I, I know how it's worked for me. And I wonder if it's been the same for you since doing this kind of work. How have you seen that impact your personality, your interpersonal relationships, your beliefs, your politics? Has that impacted it? Or are you like, you know, it, it, it hasn't, or it's confirmed or refuted things that you thought in the past. How has that made an imprint? It's definitely helped me with it's it's mostly helped me with relationships because it 
it's really forced me to be around like-minded and good people who are forward thinking. And it really uh, disassociated me from high school. I'm so glad I'm graduated because oh. I hated the people that I was around every <laughs> single day. Well, that's high school. Yeah. yeah that, right. that is high that's school. kind of the point, right? Yeah. And so, and it helped me like, as I had an outlet to go to, to find better relationships and people that did what I did, uh, it has hurt in some ways when you deal with the people that you love that are like, I don't want you doing this because you, you know, could die. And it's like, but this is also something that I enjoy as well. Uh, politics wise, my opinions have stayed, have stayed the same. Mostly I'm sure some things have changed. And if you have they see. deepened, are you now, do you, are you now like, Hey, I'm not just spouting off what I, what I, was pretty sure I knew what I agreed with, but now if you haven't changed, do you now to go, but I have example A, B, C, D now that I've lived that proves what I thought before, or is it been totally separate? I'm sure there's been times if you go into specifics that I'm just like, you know what, that is proven that. Oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I, I'm, I, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's some things that have either reinstilled my beliefs or been like, you know what? I was completely wrong about that. <laughs> right. Right. And right. I'm glad I experienced that. Or I'm glad someone told me that because I've been, I was, I was wrong this whole time. Yeah. My short 18 years of existence. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but I mean, that is the thing, you know, I think, uh, I mean, Charlie, I know you worked with, uh, with Rager Bat and I, I'm, I'm going to point them out. A lot just because of the general youth that they have in in, spe in the special operations community. I, I think there's, you know, there's 24 year olds and 22 year olds, and there's 22 year olds in Ranger Bat. They're still 22, but yeah, but you're also seeing a lot and you're doing a lot and you've lived a lot, and it's not exactly the same as just being a 22 year old that's you know, you know, waking up and going to community college and and, and just trying to get the job at Kinkos or something, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And Chris, you and I have talked about this before. As you know, the Range Regiment is my favorite unit that I was never in. Worked closely with them, helped write a book about them, but I was never a Ranger. But sure, sure. always, always impressed with those uh, young men and now young women. In fact, one of my former students here is in 1st Battalion. I'm not going to say her name because she, she's uh, operational, but uh, very impressive young people. And it's not just in the military. We have a very impressive young person on the show right now. And I'm very grateful sure. that our the future of our country is in these people's hands because there's a lot of times when, when I'm kind of questioning the direction that the young people are taking our nation. So it's kind of refreshing to see that there's still people out there that are willing to serve something better than themselves for the, the benefit of everyone, Chris. What do you think, Charlie, in your life? I mean, how, how has the military impacted you? So we, we see Andrew a couple of years in starting his journey. You now, I mean, you've got 24 years in. How has that work affected you? I mean, how, are you different? Are you the same? Are you? Yeah, I think everybody, everybody's different. You know, 9-11 happened when I was a, a young captain in the Republic of Korea. And everyone thought that war was going to be over. I was bereft because every I was going to be the only kid on my block without a combat patch and 20 years later we're still fighting it so that has shaped me a lot and the things that happened over that the you know all my deployments and everything is what drove me to go to West Point which of course got me into grad school and got me involved with, with Havoc Journal and with you and so it's changed a lot my experiences have deepened my my closely held political beliefs, which I think happens over time. People kind of solidify one way or the other. Right. But 
I am very grateful for my time in the military because, as I mentioned before, it gave me clarity. It helps me see what's important to realize not to to dwell on the small things and to focus on family and the big picture. And and it's it's good to see that Drew Andrew there is is focused on what's important. He hasn't even started college yet, so I think that's going to help put him ahead of his peers in his studies and in the future when he gets out of school, Chris. And Andrew, I hope as somebody that's going to go into a major in a field essentially midwifed by Karl Marx, I, I, I hope that college lives up to your expectations and that you don't find that the uh, firefighting and, and doing life and death work may surpass the educational benefit that you get from college. I have thought about that. I have thought about just if I'm sitting one day in class and wondering, you know, my parents have pushed education so much on me. I mean, when I was a senior in high school, I was also, I'm, well, still am in the fire academy. I was in the fire academy. I was also at my community college um, working towards, I have credits towards my associates in fire science. And I'm sitting here and I'm just like, what if I just one day in college was like, you know what? I'm just going to just gonna keep being a firefighter, just go into law enforcement and just, but I th- it's been a thought, but I I don't know until I have that epiphany. Yeah, no, no. Listen, yeah. and 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 I I think I I think it's unquestionable that education is hugely important. I think what may change, and this is a whole different show and a whole different topic. So I'm glad to be bringing it up when we're already an hour into this one. But I, I think education as a whole, um, the 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 delivery mechanisms may change, and that I think could be for the better. I think the more direct content people can access that you have to get educated, but how you get educated and what you're I think being educated. Change. I 100%. One major yeah. reason that I want to add to why I joined the fire department is I've learned more in the two and a half years that I've been serving in the fire department, not just fire related things, but life and just the wisdom that I've learned from working around the people around me than I have the four years I've been in high school. High school what kind is of not- things, what kind of things did you, did you, did you pick up? Is so, something easily articulable? So, something that I never thought I would learn in the fire department, but it's made me a lot of money is how the stock market works. I remember <laughs> one, of, one of my captains sat down with me and was just like, Andrew, this is how money works. And I was just like, whoa, this is cool. And so I picked up some books and I started reading and he sat down and he started mentoring me. And I'm just like, school has never taught me this. How oh my to. God. So I, true. I did. That's know, so true. I, I, I'm 18 year old guy. I never knew how to change the oil in my car till some person at the fire department taught me how to change the oil in my car. Uh, now I, now I've done so much car work on my car myself, learning YouTube, reading books and stuff like that. Has it saved me thousands of dollars just to do the work myself? And I would have never learned that if I wasn't in the fire department. Um, there was one, my friend drove her car right into a ditch and I was just like, oh yeah, cool. There's these little, um, like, there's this little hook on the bottom of your car that you can just like, just let me go get up there, get my truck, and then just pull it out for you. Right. I would have not known that if I if I hadn't taken, you know, you know, these vehicle classes, knowing how to extract vehicles. I would have right. not known that information, and it's how I can apply what I've learned there into the real world. And those no, are just those are uh, just a few examples. No, no. Listen, and what I love is that you're pulling us right out of lava lamp world. Like it's not all just deep philosophy and and you know you know the meaning of life stuff. But that's right. Incredibly practical questions that you start to get clarity on, and you benefit from the wisdom of of people that have been down that road and go, hey man, you're you're 18. You need to understand the stock market a little bit. I yeah. mean that's freaking so. I was just uh, talking today with a guy, uh, a wrestling coach. 
who's been an awesome wrestler his whole life. And he's like, I really needed to know real estate and real estate development. That would have been awesome. You know, it's, it's funny that the things that you learn with, with age. It's, it's, and it's just like, I would have never learned this if I never talked with these people, if I never joined this profession. Yeah. It has helped me get network and contacts, people who have given me references. It's how I have the, that's how I have the jobs that I have now. Um, it's how I have the experience I have now. And it's, it's great. And there's no, just, absolutely. It, it, it's, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of so many parallels in, in my life where I had the same thing. I remember my, judo coach years ago um, on the Virginia Army National Guard judo team in the mid 90s was a, a, a SF guy who was serving out the last of his 20 in a, in a National Guard unit um, doing like vehicular maintenance or something. But anyway, he's our judo coach. And I remember just being in awe of him because here he was like Green Beret and tough guy and all this stuff. And he was, uh, and you know, always just classic green beret attitude, like never, never a dull conversation and, and could talk to anybody and all that. But man, he would get this forlorn look on his face and he would just sit there and, and, and he go just shake his head and be like, I really should have worried a lot more about money my whole life. And I was like, damn, man. And he's like, yeah, he's like, I, I'm going to move to Fiji. I think when I'm retired and just Kind of, I, I think I could maybe open up some judo schools there or something like that. I was like, God damn, with everything you've done in your life, and that's what you're thinking about, <laughs> um, you know. And it's one of those things where I was like, I, I wish I was smart enough to know how to think about it. The problem is he didn't have any knowledge either that he could pass on to me. He just told me that was something on my to do that should be on my to do list. He didn't tell me how to get there, unfortunately. But um, yeah, it, it's it is amazing when you start to do those that kind of work, the insight that you get into. Uh, real world concerns and also options that you've never even known existed until they were told to you. And it's just like, I didn't even know that was possible until you had mentioned X, Y, and Z. Absolutely. Charlie, you had the same thing, right? You probably saw that a bunch. Yeah. And it's, it's nice to be in a profession that we take mentoring seriously. There's always ways we could do it better, but so many people just have a job and in firefighting in the military, we have a profession and the profession does many things for us and to us. And that mentorship is part of it. And I'm very grateful for the mentoring I got when I, when I was going along. And now that I'm kind of the elder statesman, uh, far older than most of the people I work with and train on a daily basis, it's nice to be that guy. Now I feel like I have something to pass along. And, uh, and, and Andrew, uh, uh, I'll bring my Jeep down. You can, uh, you can work on it for me now that you're, you've mastered all your mechanical uh, stuff. I can change my own oil though, but I, I could all use right. some help on some other stuff. Uh, you know, fix your brakes, your rotors. I replace my headlights and the whole electrical system. I remember I called the dealership and they said, yeah, that'll be 600 and something dollars. And I said, no, I, it, you know how much it cost me to fix the entire wiring of my headlight system? Wait, just like ten bucks 50, for a harness, right? Bucks, yeah. it, it 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 cost me like fifteen dollars just to buy the wires. I had my own solder, uh, like stuff like that, electrical tape, and I just rewired the entire. Now, Andrew, system. how much of this did you inflict on your car that you had to fix? Uh, none of it. I had recently. Oh. I was in a car accident, and I had to buy a new car. Uh, I completely totaled my vehicle. I was driving home from work and my right tire blew and I lost control of my car. I hit a telephone pole at about 50 miles per hour and holy shit, man. Uh, bruised my ribs, uh, bruised. I had a liver, a major liver laceration and bruised my uh, spleen. So just uh, nothing major, just pain. And uh, when was this? How long ago was this? Three months. And how are you doing? Uh, 
good as new. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And it's, not the, it's, it's not the first time I wrecked that car either. About 11 months ago, I hydroplaned to hit a tree. That was also fun. <laughs> but that, that, yeah, that car is no longer here. So, but I was able to buy another car and I was, I had to put a little bit of work into it. A lot of that work I did myself because I was like, I don't want to spend, you know, you know, a couple thousand dollars to fix up a car when I could just have a project and save money. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's how I knew I wasn't going to be a career firefighter, Charlie. I was like, I had, I was still a city kid. I had no interest in working on cars and fixing up things. I was like, yeah, I'm good. That's fine. Let me find something else. Yeah. Well, I think it worked out for you. Okay, Chris. Yeah, it worked out. All right. But, but, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be taking my car down to Andrew now. too. <laughs> That's right. All right, guys. Um, Charlie, tell me about uh, where are we with Aaron Kirk's the Hill? By the way, I did pre-order it on Amazon. So everyone else should as well, but how's that looking? Where's, hey, I'm going to show you mission? how it's looking right now. I know our audience at home can't see us, but you and Andrew can so the this I'm holding up the I know nice. it's beautiful, right? This Looking is the hardcover sharp. version of the hill available for pre-order. Aaron Kirk did such a good job on this book, and I don't think I mentioned this before, but not only is the author, he's also helping us with the actual physics uh, physical aspects of publishing this book because this is the first one we ever did. Wow. So he's been helping us with it, and he's he's such a pleasure to work with. I hope he writes a ton in the future. But yeah, here it is, and uh, Armor of God coming out next. Matt Saker's book about being an armor officer in Iraq and his religious journey on that. Wow. And who knows, down the road, maybe we'll get Andrew's uh, book on firefighting. And I think that'd be interesting to read too, Chris. Absolutely. Well, maybe sometimes. Uh, stay tuned in the next couple of years. <laughs> but let the man get through college first. Yeah, 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 seriously. I know. He's got two years in already. My God, at that point, 20-year career, he'll have a whole library ready. Um, guys, listen, uh, thank you. Thank you both for being here. We, this was awesome. Um, Andrew, real pleasure having you on. And as a great article, I uh, can't wait for you to put out more when and where it's appropriate. Um, but really appreciate it. And Charlie, as always, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for having me. So to everyone else, subscribe if you haven't already. And five-star reviews, especially on iTunes. I think iTunes is the only one that has five-star reviews. But if there's other ones, we'll take five-star reviews anywhere you are currently listening to this show. But certainly on iTunes, I know they do have five-star reviews. And again, say whatever you want in the review. We're, we're happy to take whatever criticism you have. But if you can attach it to a five-star review, that would be awesome. The show notes. We will have the show notes at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Again, that's theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. We'll also have show notes wherever you're listening to this. So if you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, whatever. Um, just scroll down and you'll see the show notes. Above the show notes, you will also see the alibis for anything that I misstated, brain farts that I had, things that I said that I should have added more context to, or I misremembered, or anything else that woke me up at two in the morning and made me break out in a cold sweat and go, why the hell did I say it like that? That's also true for our guests. Although, as I always say, rarely do our guests take me up on that because generally I'm the only one that butchers it to the point that I need to cover my ass and say it in a better way and write something about it after. As always, thank you to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Charlie Faint and Andrew, and we'll see you next time for the Weekly Havoc.
I've, I've forced my girlfriend to read articles with me. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, hey, check this out. This is pretty cool. And then I didn't tell her I wrote one. I was like, hey, check this one out. She's like, oh what man, this one's. This <laughs> one sucks. It's terrible. This first she was thing. like, she was like, this one's really, really depressing and sad. <laughs> <laughs> like, who would Aww. write? And and I quote, and I quote, who would write something like this? <laughs> and I was like, that- I would. Charlie, <laughs> that, that might be a good tagline. Who would write something? Have <laughs> Who would write something like this? More importantly, who yeah. would read something like this? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs>